Good morning. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you and we praise you for bringing Jason through COVID, answering our prayers. We thank you, Lord, for each other and for what we have in you as the body of Christ. Thank you for the fellowship that you've given us here with one another. Help us to never take it for granted. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would break bread with us now and feed us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. And as always, help us to apply it to our lives for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm trying to <clears throat> clear my throat here. Um, title of the sermon is Newness of Life. Newness of Life. The last time we were together in Romans, we looked at Romans 5. Could you, could you go there now in your Bible with me? We looked at Romans 5 and we learned that we should be rejoicing in the fact that we have been saved from what? The wrath of God. Why? Because we have been justified by faith in the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also looked at the Apostle Paul's contrasting comparison. There's a hyphen there. Contrasting hyphen comparison between Adam and Christ. And as such, we saw that Adam's sin led to condemnation of who? Every single human being on the planet. While the righteous act of Christ in going to the cross led to the justification before the Father for who? All that believe. That's just a short summary of what we concluded after studying Romans 5, 12 through 21. Now, as I said, please look in your Bibles at Romans 5, beginning in verse 18. Paul continues his thought from verse 18 through verse 21 and then into chapter 6, verse 1. And he does so as if there are no chapter or there is no chapter and verse break because when he wrote it there wasn't he continues his train of thought from 518 to 61 our aim is to follow his thought as he goes from one chapter to the next and so let's begin as i said with chapter 5 verse 18 follow me as i read along therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's trespass, so one act of righteousness, that would be Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men, Jew and Gentile. For as by the one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, 
The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that would be Christ, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay. So what's Paul saying in the beginning of Romans 6? He's conveying the notion that having God's grace and forgiveness as we do does not mean that we can just go on deliberately continuing in sin, right? We don't continue pursuing and persisting in sin just because God's grace has already given us Christ's righteousness, thereby leading us to eternal life in him. Simply put, the gospel is not only a matter of proclaiming and believing, it's also a matter of living. Look at the latter part of verse 4 in chapter 6. Paul says we are to walk in newness of life, not in the sinfulness of the old life, thereby wrongly expecting to take advantage of our new forgiveness in Christ in some cheap way. We call that cheap grace. When you sin purposely and try to take advantage of the grace that God has shown you in Christ. Cheap grace. We don't go around saying to ourselves and to others that we can sin whenever we like because after all, God's grace continues to abound and flourish in my life despite my sin. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new 
has come. And what about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24? Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And lest you need more, more convincing church, Paul also says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. The image of the creator. Remember, this is or at least it should be the aim of each and every one of us. In Romans 8, 29, Paul writes that we are, or that we were, I should say, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, everything, he might be preeminent. And what about Revelation chapter 1, verse 5? John says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. He made us a kingdom of priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there you have it. We are free from the dominion of sin. And as such, we are put or we should put on the new self and walk in the newness of life. Because we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4, our text. And in reality, we know that we will also be united with Christ in his resurrection. Look at 6, 5. That's what it says. And we know that our body of sin is brought to nothing, meaning that sin no longer reigns over us and we are no longer enslaved to sin. 6.6. Six. Look at the verse. Why? Because we have died to sin. And as such, we have been set free from sin. Romans 6.7. 
In addition, if that's not enough, as we are now free from the dominion of sin, we have instead become slaves to righteousness, which leads to our sanctification. Verses 18 and 19 of Romans 6, if you want to look at that. So we have been liberated in Christ and sin no longer rules over us. We've been liberated in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Now before we move on, I want to make sure that I don't mislead anyone into wrong thinking. And so let me be very clear. We do not put off the old man and put on the new man and thereby do so to gain any merit with God. My favorite Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, all of his works are free online, monergism.com and uh, puritanlibrary.com and a bunch of other places actually. In his work on the Ten Commandments, it's a series of sermons put into a book. Thomas Watson says, obedience must be sincere. We must aim at the glory of God in it. The end of our obedience must not be to stop the mouth of conscience or to gain applause or preferment, but that we may grow more like God and bring more glory to God. And then he says, do all for the glory of God. And he's quoting Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I want you to understand that we don't live a life of obedience as new men and women in Christ in order to gain any favor or merit with God because we can't. Merit with the Father was obtained through the Son, through Christ, for us, which is why we stand righteous before God. We, instead, live obedient, holy lives so that we can become more like Christ and in so doing, model Christ and the gospel to the world which brings glory to God, not to us. That's the goal of the new life in Christ. Those of us, and there are many, including me, those of us that have been raised or brought up in denominations that stress a lot of do's and don'ts under the guise of either being approved or disapproved or even punished by God, those of us that fall into that camp must continually retrain our thinking. We must get into the habit of regularly reminding ourselves that we are not being obedient out of 
duty because we are afraid that God will punish us or we are, we are afraid that we are going to lose right standing with him. That's what I call stinking thinking. And it's contrary to the gospel, which offers us free salvation by grace through faith because of what Christ did and not because of what we do. Everybody with me on that? All you former Roman Catholics. Okay, so let's move on to the next part of our text, which will be verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6 dictate that we died to sin when we died with Christ in baptism. I'm going to say that again. We died to sin when we died with Christ in baptism. Water baptism. However, it's important for us to see that baptism is not the theme of chapter 6. Instead, the main theme is our participation with the death and resurrection of Christ. More on that in a moment. But right now, because of verses 3 and 4, we must examine how it is that we are to understand the relationship between our baptism and union with Christ. The first thing we need to understand is that all of the believers in Paul's day were baptized in water. 99.9% of them. So to refer to those who are baptized is to refer to those who had already put their faith in Christ, for the most part. So what Paul is saying is that all Christians have participated in the death and burial of Christ because all of them had received water baptism. This is, according to, I've quoted him before, the theologian Tom Schreiner, other well-known theologians I checked on this to make sure that I was interpreting this correctly. So simply put, those who are baptized belong to Christ and are united with him in their baptism. Now, look at verse, let's start, verse 4. Okay, follow along. We were buried with him, that's 4. We were united with him, 5. We were crucified with him, verse 6. We died with Christ, verse 8. And we shall live together with him, verse 8. Hence, I think it's pretty clear that our union with Christ is completely out front in Paul's thinking. Here's why. Follow me carefully. Back in chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, Paul posits that Christ is the second Adam or the new Adam. Just as the first Adam introduced sin and death to humankind, 
So does the second Adam produce freedom from sin and eternal life for all those who are found in him that is in Christ? The reference to our old self by Paul in verse 6 refers to who we are in Adam. I'm sorry, who we were in Adam, thereby referring to our old way of life. To be baptized into Christ is to be joined with the second Adam and the subsequent salvation and new way of life. As usual, we will prove this to be true by allowing scripture to interpret scripture. And I'll, I'll try to tidy things up here. Paul uses this baptism this baptism into Christ motif in other places. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or have been clothed with Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, those that belong to Christ are baptized into his body. Now please go back, look at Romans 6, verse 3. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This means that this means that we were immersed, submerged, dunked, plunged, saturated together with Christ in his death through water baptism. And if we have been united with Christ in his death, then it only logically follows that we were also buried with him into his death, which if you look, is verse 4 of chapter 6. So you see, the burial confirms and validates the fact that there was a death. One does not typically bury something unless it's dead. I'm going to say that again. I want you to listen very carefully. Burial confirms and validates the fact that there was a death. One does not typically bury something unless it's dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Death and burial go hand in hand. There's something else we need to take a look at here. Christian denominations that espouse or believe in baptismal regeneration use these verses, Romans 6, 3 and 4, they use them primarily as proof texts for baptismal 
regeneration. Now, for, for those that do not know what baptismal regeneration is, it's the doctrine that coincides with the belief that when one is water baptized, even if they're an infant, if one is water baptized, their sins are washed away, and as such, they are saved from damnation because they were water baptized either as infants or adults. I told the story one, one time from the pulpit, and it was a long time ago, so I'm going to tell it again because it fits here. When I was a chaplain on the university campuses, there was a colleague who was also a chaplain, Sister Bernadette, and she knew that I went to Catholic schools and that I was baptized Catholic. She knew through conversations we had together. And the last time I saw her, she said that she would see me in heaven. And I looked at her kind of odd, and she said, well, you were baptized Catholic. She didn't care that I was a Protestant minister. She thought that because I was baptized Catholic as an infant, that my sins were forgiven. Maybe she would have thought I would have spent some years in purgatory, but I'm not so sure. So the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Lutheran Church are the three big denominations that believe in what they call the sacrament of baptism, which again, proof text, Romans 6, 3 and 4, or the baptismal rite, R-I-T-E, the rite of baptism, in their faith traditions. They believe that when an infant, as I said, bears repeating, is baptized, that the baptism washes away original sin. Remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about original sin, total depravity. As a matter of fact, when the baby is baptized, the priest says this. I'm quoting. The Christian community welcomes you with great joy. He's saying this to the infant. In its name, the name of the church, I claim you for Christ our Savior by the sign of his cross. I now trace the cross on your forehead and invite your parents and godparents to do the same. Then the priest says, we pray for this child. Set him or her free from original sin. Make him or her a temple of your glory and send your Holy Spirit to dwell within him. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. That's roughly what they say. I looked it up. As Baptists, we are Reformed Baptists. If you really want to nail us to the wall, that's what we are on paper. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Oh, shaggy. We do not believe that anyone is saved or acquires salvation either through or because of water baptism 
whether they be an infant or an adult. The numerous examples of water baptism in the New Testament demonstrate that those who were baptized came to a cognizant, believing faith prior to their water baptism. And so we believe that it is one's faith that saves them and then they are water baptized as an outward sign of an inward commitment to Christ. And of course, we believe what we've studied here this morning that water baptism is a symbolic union or a symbol, not a symbolic union, a symbol of our union with Christ. Follow me. There isn't anything, look at your Bibles, there isn't anything in Romans 6 regarding the notion of baptismal regeneration. Nothing. Paul refers to believers as being baptized in our text because as I said before, unbaptized Christians were unheard of at the time. They were saved, they were water baptized. Read the book of Acts. So every believer, so to speak, was baptized at conversion. If Paul believed in water baptism as a means to salvation in Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, Romans 6, verses 3 through 5 would have been a perfect place for him to say it. And he didn't. He makes no such claim here, and he makes no such claim in any of the two-thirds of the New Testament that he wrote. By the way, this is important. Paul also does not mention repentance here. Which is something that he always alludes to when he speaks of genuine salvation vis-a-vis the gospel message. To die to sin by dying with Christ in baptism is also for the believer, I'm sorry, is for the believer or the already converted. A lot. I say that, the only reason why I'm saying it like that is because a lot of people today are converted and then they're not water baptized, some of them, for years later. It's symbolic of the reality that the Christian who dies to sin with Christ in baptism has acknowledged that sin will no longer have dominion or mastery over him or her. It's a decision that you make. Schreiner puts it this way. He says, and I quote, Paul's argument then is that grace cannot possibly lead believers to sin, I'm sorry, to sin more because by dying with Christ, the power of sin has been definitively broken. I'm going to read that again. 
Paul's argument then is that grace cannot possibly lead believers to sin more because by dying with Christ, the power of sin has been definitively broken. As Christians, we should desire holiness. If you call yourself a Christian and you don't desire to live a holy life or to be like Christ, then something might be off. Now, let's look at what is most important here. In these verses, this will be in the latter part of verse 4. We'll call it 4b, which I don't like, but latter part. Paul says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in the newness of life. The newness of a believer's life is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse 20. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The new self and the newness of life that we are called to walk in are not only grounded in a participation in Christ's death and burial, but also in his resurrection. Our new life, spoken of by Paul in Romans 6, 4, is rooted in God the Father working through Christ. Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Glory, quote-unquote glory here, refers to the power of God that accomplished the resurrection of Christ. This same power is in us through our union with Christ. And as such, this is what I want you to leave here with this morning. The same power of God that enables us as believers, to walk in this newness of life. To not only share in Christ's death and burial, 
but it also causes us to share in his resurrection. Which is future, but now it's positional in Christ. As is our inheritance, our adoption, etc., etc. So we are united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death or in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul is saying that those of us that are converted and baptized experience the impact of Christ's death and resurrection right now in this Christian life. We experience the impact of it. Some of the power of it. The position of it. The benefits from it. Even though it's future, technically, we still share in it and derive good things from it now. We are able now, because of it, that resurrection, that death, burial, and resurrection, we're able to walk in that newness of life because the power of Christ, the power of that resurrection has become ours in the union that we have with him, with Christ. Tom Schreiner, one more time, calls this what I just said. He calls it the already but not yet tension that permeates Paul's writings, which we have seen in the sermons from this pulpit a thousand times. We talk about where we are positionally in Christ, what we receive now and what we have not yet received but will. Receive. That's what Shriner is saying when he says that. So, as you leave, know this. Your old self has died and has been buried with Christ. You now walk in newness of life because you are a new self in Christ and you partake of the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and which one day will raise you from the dead literally in a glorified body in a glorified state sin no longer right now has dominion over you you are no longer a slave to sin so it's time to live accordingly for those of you who are not doing so Put it bluntly, remember, remember, God disciplines those that he loves. And I can assure you from personal experience that it's not pleasant. So walk in the newness of life that is yours and bring glory to God as you do it and win people to the kingdom as you do it.
Let's pray.